0: Hello, I'm Marty Lucan. EdChoice is Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis. Today, I'm in the studio with Mike Podgursky, Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri and a Friedman Fellow for us here at EdChoice. Thanks for joining me today, Mike. Well, thanks for having me. I'm pleased to be here at EdChoice, the former Friedman
1: Foundation.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mike, your work has had a considerable influence on K-12 policy Especially on teacher pensions. But you didn't always work on pensions. You've written on all sorts of topics, many related to other aspects of the teacher's labor market. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were one of really just a few economists who started a few decades ago researching education policy when the field was really dominated by researchers from colleges of education, usually. Can you please tell our audience a bit about yourself and what brought you into the space? Well, I came out of graduate school with a stamp as labor
1: economist on my forehead. And the field of economics of education was sort of new then, basically. So I, w- I did labor economics. And, oh, I suppose in the early 90s, I got interested in teacher, public school teacher labor markets. As I looked more at those markets, they were just sort of a bundle of pathologies. <laughs> there was there was licensing, complicated, dysfunctional licensing, single salary schedules, collective bargaining, and then pensions, as I would learn later. It was a lot of fun as an economist to sort of analyze this market that had so many rigidities and inefficiencies. And then later on, I got in sort of a public debate with some of the people from colleges of education and teacher unions and accrediting organizations about reforming the teacher labor market and teacher training and licensing. So there were there were advocacy groups trying to push sort of a medical professional self-regulation model onto the market. So
0: yes, it's been interesting as an economist to, to do work in this area. Oh, that's great. And can you tell us about some of your current research as well as what you've done and perhaps what you're working on now or hoping to work on in the future? Well,
1: Again, as an economist, I was interested in lots of aspects of teacher labor markets. And so we wrote about licensing and collective bargaining, a little bit on that, training. But I got interested in a lot in teacher compensation and how teachers are paid and the level and the structure. And really starting in the early 2000s, I got interested in this teacher pension issue. It was clear even then that These teacher pensions were very peculiar things (laughs) that had a lot of odd features in them that you often didn't see elsewhere. You certainly didn't see in, in other professional labor markets. The costs were rising even at that point, and they were going to start rising much faster. And they had just a bundle of odd incentives, and it was clear that they were pushing teachers, nudging teachers, incentivizing teachers to retire at relatively early ages. And they were included very severe penalties for teacher mobility if a teacher moved from one state to another. So I've continued working on mostly on the teacher pension issue because it's really a big mess. (laughs) And so it deserves a lot of attention. They
0: deserve a lot of attention. Definitely. And it's interesting where... Talking right now at the end of the week, the same week that the Supreme Court of the US ruled on the landmark case, Janice, about teacher union agency fees. Can you talk about what that ruling might mean for teacher pensions and for the teacher labor market just a little bit?
1: As an economist who studied teacher labor markets for about 40, well, as a labor economist and then someone who's looked at teacher labor markets for a long time. I can tell you that this is one of the most consequential policy changes or court decisions in my career, in my professional life. I think it's going to have a huge effect on public K-12 education, although again, these unions also operate in higher ed as well, but I think the biggest impact will be in public K-12 education. Clearly, it's going to change, particularly in bargaining states. You're going to see a big difference in labor management relations. I think it's going to open the door to a great deal more flexibility. I also think in the area of policy in those states, there's no question that the biggest player in the room, the one with the most clout in much of K-12 policy, including pensions, including school spending, has been the teacher unions. And this is going to reduce their influence in the political process. And yes, the strongest defenders of these traditional pension plans have been the teacher unions and public employee unions generally, but in terms of teacher pensions, it's teacher unions.
0: Right. So most of the focus of your work has been on pensions. And it'll be really interesting to see how the effects from this decision play out. Can you tell us what lessons should policymakers take away from your work, and is it linked to in any way to school choice?
1: Well, I guess in a nutshell, I'd say the lesson or the situation, if you will, with teacher pensions is their costs have exploded in almost every state. Fifteen years ago, public school pensions accounted for about five cents of the education dollar. It's now about 11 to 12 cents. So it's their share of the education dollar has grown dramatically. The reason for that increase is that the pension plans are underwater. That is to say, they don't have enough assets to pay for the liabilities they've incurred. And so that's forced higher contribution rates for teachers and K-12 employees, as well as higher payments by school districts and legislatures. So they've become very costly. And I think there's good reason to believe these costs will continue to rise. But putting that aside, I think that these traditional plans are not well-designed for recruiting and retaining high-quality teachers. They're designed to punish mobility, and young people are mobile. So if they're designed to sort of hold you in place for a certain period of time and then actually incentivize you to retire at relatively early ages, teachers retire varies a bit from state to state, but in Missouri, for example, around age 57 or 58 is a typical retirement age. I mean, you, you would be very hard-pressed to find a math teacher who is 60 or older in a public school in, in the U.S. There's some, but the pension systems are encouraging what we call churn, producing more turnover than you would in a system that didn't have these kinds of incentives, most individuals would work till a traditional sort of social security retirement ages from, you know, sort of 62 to 66. So, and the, the pensions aren't mobile. So if teachers move, even if they work a full career in teaching, if they spend half their 15 years in Missouri and then 15 years in Kansas... They're going to have severe penalties, as we call it, or as we measure it. They would lose about half their pension wealth by moving around, moving from one place to another, which is what professionals do. <laughs> professionals tend to move, and mobility is good. If there's schools that need teachers in Austin, Texas and there's declining enrollments in southeast Missouri then an efficient labor market would encourage teachers to move from areas where there's less need for teachers to areas where there's more need for teachers but the pension plans are designed to punish that so they just there's we could do better with the money we're
0: spending than what we have here interesting now proponents of these plans specifically these defined benefit plans they often argue that these plans are effective and needed for retaining teachers to incentivize them to stay in a district for a full career, and that's what they're designed to do, and they're doing that well. So what does the research say, if anything, on this question?
1: Well, we see no evidence that these kinds of plans improve the quality of the workforce as compared to, a, you know, say a traditional Oral 1K or Uh, 403B type defined contribution plan. But again, it's an experiment that we haven't run on a large scale because almost all states are in these kinds of plans. But we know that lots of charter schools, for example, have opted out of these state plans. In 20 states, charter schools can opt out. And in those states, they're doing just fine recruiting teachers with with the kinds of plans that are typical for young professionals in in, virtually any other endeavor, Mm -hmm. including, I'm sure, here at EdChoice, some kind of 401k or 403b type plan. So again, there's no evidence that these plans are improving the quality of the incoming teachers. In fact, most young teachers have no idea about how their plans work. Uh, they they know very little about these. On the other hand, they do know that a lot of money is coming out of their paychecks to pay for these, so that's very salient for them. And if you put them in a less expensive and more mobile plan, you could pay them higher starting salaries. So the question is one of trade-offs, and I think there's good reason to believe that if you put more money up front in salaries rather than these very expensive backloaded benefits, you could actually do a better job of recruiting young teachers.
0: So what needs and priorities do you see for the future of school choice research? Well,
1: I think that in my own little narrow terrain, what school choice shows is that you can deliver high-quality teaching from a charter school or private school without these kinds of very costly kind of benefit structures. Uh, You know, private schools recruit teachers and they don't do these things. Many charter schools recruit very good teachers and they don't have these kinds of pension plans. So I think that introducing more choice and sort of diversity in the sort of output space that is in terms of the market for K-12 education will introduce more choice and diversity in the teacher labor market. You're not going to see this sort of one-size-fits-all compensation structure where, again, we haven't talked about teacher salary schedules. So in Dallas, you know, tens of thousands of teachers all march according to the same salary schedule that they, you know, if you have a bachelor's degree and five years of experience, you make the same salary, whatever you're teaching and whatever school you're in. So these kinds of rigidities, sort of go with the monopoly in the product market, as economists would say. And if you break up the monopoly in the product market, you're going to see more diversity and choice for teachers and education professionals.
0: Great. And you've done quite a bit of work studying uh, retirements and charter schools. Are you continuing that line of research or do you have anything new or forthcoming that you'd like to plug or is there anything that our listeners should keep an eye out for? Well, my
1: own work sort of as a professional economist for academic journals has been (laughs) sort of modeling how teachers respond to pension plan incentives. So I think the force of circumstances is going to produce changes in these pension plans for teachers in most states. Some are going to stick with this sort of defined benefit structure, but others are going to introduce what are called hybrids plans, a mix of defined contribution, defined benefits. Some have moved away from the defined benefit plans altogether. And if you want to determine what that's going to do for the workforce and how much it's going to cost and so on, you need some good economic models. So I've been working on that issue. As I indicated in earlier remarks, we have this interesting laboratory in the charter schools where charters can, in 20 states, charters can opt out of the state teacher plans. Usually they have to do it when the school first opens. It's a little hard to get out sometimes after you've already been in. It's a bit like the Hotel California, but it's been very understudied what they actually do and what kinds of plans they put in place and what their teachers think about those plans and and what what their effects have been. So it's a fascinating area to study that really hasn't been looked at. So I'm working on that and trying to get some case studies of some interesting plans. And charter school chains, there's a fancy word for that, charter maintenance organizations.
0: Oh, CMOs, sorry.
1: CMOs, yes, that, that operate many charter schools. So like KIP Academy or Success Academy. And so to what extent are they carrying these models from place to place? So it's a fascinating sector with lots of innovation going on, and it's a a market. It's the market at work. And by the way, it's a good example of what I said earlier, that you have school choice in those markets, and the school choice in the output market, that is to say the choice for the parents, produces diversity and innovation and variety in the way teachers are paid and the benefit structures and so on. And so... It gives, us, it gives an economist like me something to study.
0: And I think another area that educational choice can improve, which you brought up in past conversations, is transparency. You know, with all these hidden costs in public schools, whereas, say, with an education savings account, you get an ESA or $7,000 or whatever, and boom. You know, it's, that's it. Well, that's, this is interesting. We'll have to keep an eye out for some more of your work on this issue. Well, Mike, it's uh, always been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Well, thanks for being such
0: strong proponents of choice for parents and kids. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for more of our coverage of new school choice research, education reform policy chats, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon for more Ed Choice chats. <laughs>